Romans chapter 15. We then that are strong are to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. For even Christ pleased not himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproached thee fell on me. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Now the God of patience and consolation grant you to be like-minded one toward another according to Christ Jesus, that ye may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wherefore receive you one another, as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made unto the fathers, and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, For this cause I will confess to thee among the Gentiles and sing unto thy name. And again he saith, Rejoice ye Gentiles with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all ye Gentiles, and laud him, all ye people. And again, Isaiah saith, there shall be a root of Jesse, and he <clears throat> that shall arise to reign over the Gentiles. In him shall the Gentiles trust. Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that ye may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. And I myself also am persuaded of you, my brethren, that ye also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. Nevertheless, brethren, I have written the more boldly unto you in some sort as putting you in mind because of the grace that is given to me of God, that I should be the minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering up of the Gentiles might be acceptable, being sanctified by the Holy Ghost. I therefore whereof I may glory through Jesus Christ in those things which pertain to God. For I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ hath not wrought by me to make the Gentiles obedient by word and deed, through mighty signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and round about into Illyricum I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Yea, so have I strived to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build upon another man's foundation. But as it is written, to whom he was not spoken of, they shall see, and they that have not heard shall understand. For which cause also I have been much hindered from coming to you, but now having no more place in these parts, and having a great desire these many years to come unto you, Whensoever I take my journey into Spain, I will come to you, for I trust to see you in my journey, and to be brought on my way thitherward by you, if first I be somewhat filled with your company. But now I go into Jerusalem to minister unto the saints. For it hath pleased them of Macedonia and Achaia 
to make a certain contribution for the poor saints which are at Jerusalem. It hath pleased them verily, and their debtors they are. For if the Gentiles have been made partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister unto them in carnal things. When therefore I have performed this and have sealed to them this fruit, I will come by you into Spain. And I am sure that when I come unto you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. Now I beseech you, brethren, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake, and for the love of the Spirit, that ye strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I may be delivered from them, and do not believe to them that do not believe in uh, Judea, and that my service which I have for Jerusalem may be accepted of the saints, that I may come unto you with joy by the will of God, and may with you be refreshed. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. I take as my text from the scripture this Lord's Day, Proverbs chapter 18, verse 13. Proverbs 18:13, where we find these words: "He that answereth a matter before he heareth it, it is folly and shame unto him." How often do you interrupt someone before they are even finished speaking? How often do you form a conclusion before even hearing the other side of the issue? How often do you take someone's side without fully considering information from all those involved? Dear ones, we are by nature rash and quick all too often in speaking our minds, and in so doing we disgrace ourselves according to the inspired testimony of Scripture as we find it here in Proverbs 18.13. Rash statements and quick judgments will inevitably bring much injury to our own name, and rightfully so. For how can we pretend to understand accurately all issues, all questions, and have opinions on every single subject at a moment's notice if we have not carefully weighed our response? Before rationally responding to any idea, to any opinion or decision or conviction, we should act as though we were judges in a court of law. Judges who must seek to render a righteous, an accurate, a biblical judgment to the testimony that's presented to us. Dear ones, if we would be wise rather than foolish, we must follow the inspired exhortation of James, as we find it in James 1.19. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. As we consider our text in Proverbs 18.13, this Lord's Day, let us focus our attention then upon the following two main points. First of all, we do not disgrace ourselves in giving a response in every situation. Secondly, we do disgrace ourselves in giving a response before we fully understand the issues involved. 
Let us consider then the first main point together. We do not disgrace ourselves in giving a response in every circumstance or in every situation. Solomon says, He that answereth a matter before he heareth it, it is folly and shame unto him. Now it is clear that Solomon here properly qualifies what kind of answering a matter is disgraceful and embarrassing to any man, woman, or child. It is not answering a matter in and of itself that is a shame and a disgrace, that humiliates a man in the presence of others, but rather a specific kind of answering a matter, as we shall soon see, that brings disgrace upon ourselves. For answering a matter, in many cases, is part and parcel of our faith in Jesus Christ. For example, we are called by God to answer a matter in many various circumstances and situations. But I'll give you a couple just to reflect upon and to consider at this point. The first one that I would give to you is based upon a passage we find in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, where it says this, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. That is, with meekness, with humility, and with reverence to God. Here we are clearly taught that we are to set the Lord apart in our hearts as holy and worthy of all our worship, and obedience by doing something in particular. What is that that we are to do in particular? We are to be ready at all times to answer every man who asks us of the hope that is within us. We are to be ready at all times, according to James, to give a reason, a defense, a reasonable defense, an apologetic, if you will. That is the word from which this comes, apologia, in the Greek language, from which we get our word apologetic, giving a defense, defending our faith, giving an answer and a response when people ask us, what do you believe about this? Why do you believe that? You see, God does not want us to be ignorant of what we believe and why we believe it. He wants us to have a firm foundation. For faith is not a blind faith. Faith is based upon reason. It's based upon facts. It's based upon truth. And where does that truth come from? But from God, as revealed in the Scriptures. This is the same word that we find in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, this word reason, to give a reason. 2 Timothy 4, 16, where the Apostle Paul uses it in its normal usage. It's a term that's used in a court of law. Paul says, at my first answer, that's the word right there, answer, at my first answer no man stood with me, but all men forsook me. I pray, God, that it may not be laid to their charge. 
What is he talking about? Well, he's saying, the first time that I appeared before the emperor, my first answer, my first defense, no one was there to stand with me. Everyone had gone their own way. Everyone had forsaken me. And so it is used here in 1 Peter 3, verse 15. We are to be, as it were, in a court of law, giving a reason for what we believe to whomever may ask us. And I would exhort you, therefore, dear ones, let us not simply believe and accept what is given to us because I say so, the pastor says so, or because the church says so, or because our confession of faith says so, but because God speaking in his infallible word says so. God cannot lie. We as fallible human beings can err. Church courts can err and have erred. But God, speaking in his infallible word, cannot err. Let us therefore base what we believe and go to the scriptures to find what we believe. It doesn't mean that we can't use the instruction which God has given to us through faithful teachers, pastors, and ministers. That doesn't mean we cannot use those as aids and helps to our faith. But we do not believe something on the authority of a human being. We believe something on the authority of God speaking in his word. And so when men do confront you or do ask you questions about what you believe, I encourage you, don't simply say, well, this is what our church believes. Don't leave them with the impression that you simply are parroting and mimicking what someone has told you. And the tape recorder simply goes on at the point that they ask what you believe because you've heard it somewhere else. But stay what you believe and know the scriptures and be able to use the scriptures to defend what you believe. Stand upon the authority of God's infallible word. You can't go wrong, dear ones, in such a case. And I would, I would again give to you a word of admonition at this point, dear ones. Implicit faith or absolute obedience required by any human authority, whether it's a civil authority, a familial authority, or an ecclesiastical authority, is in effect a denial of this passage that we find in 1 Peter 3.15. And it's a denial of true Christian liberty. For how can one give a reasoned defense of a doctrine that is attacked when his appeal is to the fallible authority of man rather than to the infallible authority of God? It's found in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. You see, even the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ did not pretend to exercise an absolute authority over those to whom they ministered. You remember in Acts 17.11 when the apostles went to Berea. There the Bereans were said to be more noble than the Christians or the people in Thessalonica, the Jews in Thessalonica. Why? 
because they compared what the apostles said to the scriptures to see that it was so. I think it's very instructive in an age in which churches claim an absolute authority that we find the apostles saying in in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 24 <clears throat> again the apostle Paul speaking he says not for that we that is that we as apostles have dominion over your faith but are helpers of your joy for by faith you stand we don't exercise the Apostle Paul says, we do not, as apostles, exercise authority, supreme or absolute authority over your faith. Only God can do so. And this was one of the most powerful Reformation truths Derwins proclaimed by Wycliffe, by Huss, by Luther, by Calvin and Knox and others. It set men free from the tyranny of man's authority over the conscience and put the conscience properly under God's authority alone. A second example of answering a matter which I would submit to you is approved of God and not condemned by Proverbs 18.13 is found in James 5. 16. First example was that we are to give a, a response. We are to answer those who seek a reason for our faith. The second example comes from James 5.16, where we find that we are to confess our faults. Confess our faults one to another. Here's another example of answering a matter that's in accordance with God's word. When we confess our faults one to another. You see, dear ones, when we have sinned against one another, sinned against a family member, sinned against a brother or sister in Christ, sinned against a friend or a stranger, we are called by God to acknowledge that we have sinned. And we are to confess our faults one to another. Or not to be proud and arrogant and hold on to our sin. But rather we are to humble ourselves and acknowledge that we have indeed sinned. We so often sinfully, I believe, convince ourselves that if we confess that we have sinned against others, we will disgrace ourselves and lose the respect of others. We'll admit that we really are very weak people if we confess our sins or our faults one to another. But I would submit to you, dear ones, if we do lose the respect of others because we confess to them our sin, then I would say that their respect was not worth having at all. I don't really desire to have the respect of those who consider me to be weak because I acknowledge that I've sinned against them. To the contrary, the respect of those that is worth having will only be increased by our humble confession of our sin. More often than not, the reason we do not want to confess our sins to others is because we want to stay face before others. We do not want to appear weak before others. And so the real problem in such cases is pride. 
It's conceit in our own souls. Here was Jesus Christ died and suffered the infinite wrath of God upon that cross against sin. But he died also, in particular, to atone for the sin of pride and to break the power of pride in our lives that we might not be in absolute servitude to pride, that we may be able to crucify and mortify the pride in our lives through Christ Jesus, through his power, and live before him as Christ lived. To live before God in such a way as to follow Christ's example who did not seek to please himself, who did not seek to gain the applause of men, but sought to gain the applause of God his Father and laying down his life in all humility. How this pride, dear ones, shines forth in our marriages, dear ones, when we know we shouldn't have uttered those vengeful words in the heat of passion or shouted those very angry words, or used that profane and ungodly speech, or hurled that horrible name at our husband or at our wife. And then we refuse to humble ourselves and confess to God that we have sinned, and we refuse to acknowledge and confess that we have sinned against our husband and wife as well. I would submit to you, dear ones, that marriage is one of the greatest means of sanctification and purifying our lives that God gives to man in this world. We are tried in every possible way in marriage by those who we are called to love the most upon the earth. If we would put such pride to death in God would call us in marriage to humble ourselves. You want a means, one of the means that God has given to us to humble ourselves? Confess your sins to your spouse when you sin against them. Confess your sins to your children, parents, when you sin against them. Parents, this is real hard. Confess your sins to your children when you sin against them. It's a means God gives for our sanctification that we not be proud and arrogant, that we follow the example of Christ, who did not sin, but yet even humbled himself to the point of death and dying for sinners like you and me. And then we must earnestly pray, dear ones, that God would expose our pride to our sight, that we may see it in all of its ugliness and and its contempt before God. We must see uh, and pray that the grace of God teach us to hate and despise our pride, not to love it, not to embrace it, not to cherish it, but to forsake it. We must live daily a life of acknowledging, as James says, Acknowledging our faults, confessing our faults one to another. 
how our marriages and every other relationship that we have with our fellow man would be transformed if we would simply learn to apply this truth, this one truth to our lives. Confess your faults one to another. Thus there are many times in our lives in which we are called to give an answer to others which is not disgraceful to ourselves but glorifying to the Lord. But there is a specific time in which we are called to refrain from giving an answer to others. Let's consider very briefly when that time is. And that brings us to our second main point. We do disgrace ourselves in giving a response before we fully understand the issues involved. King Solomon, a man renowned for his wisdom, gives us counsel, inspired counsel, given by God, when he states, He that answereth a matter, and this is the qualification, before he heareth it, it is folly and shame unto him. Herein we see that there is a specified time when we are to bite our tongues, close our mouths, put our hands over our mouths, and wait to speak. That time is before we fully understand the issues involved. In all such cases, Solomon says we bring public reproach, humiliation, and shame upon ourselves for we act as though we know something when we really know nothing about it. Quite literally, Solomon says in Proverbs 18.13, very literal translation from the, from the Hebrew in which this was written. He that returneth a matter before he heareth it, it is a folly and shame to him. He that returneth. Now here is a man who humiliates and embarrasses himself before others. Why? In what way does he humiliate and embarrass himself before others? Because he returns a matter before the matter has been heard or understood by him. Now, let me give you some examples as to really what's being said here in in more contemporary terms. What would you think of a tennis player who's out on the tennis court and he's standing ready to receive the serve? And the other guy hasn't served the ball yet, but then all of a sudden he goes over and starts hitting as if the ball had been served. He's returning the ball before it's been served. Or what if you had a baseball player standing up at bat and the pitcher has the ball. Before he even goes into his wind-up, the guy starts swinging and then he takes off to first base. Everyone would laugh him to scorn. Or a basketball player, before he receives the ball, is going around acting like he's got the ball, shooting jump shots and running back to the other end of the court. How silly. How stupid, we'd say. What a fool. Well, Solomon says that's what this person is like because he's returning something before he even understands it. Now, we can see so clearly in these other examples how silly it is. But we don't see how silly this is all too often. But Solomon puts it into that category. It's folly and shame. It's a disgrace to him. He humiliates himself when he speaks when he really hasn't carefully considered what he's about to say. 
Here once the longer I live, <clears throat> the more I want to put my own hand over my mouth before saying anything. For the longer I live, the more I realize how much I don't really know and yet need to learn. The impulsiveness and rashness of youth I have come to see is nothing of which I am proud, but rather something of which I should be and am ashamed. How many words I have uttered that I would love to have taken back and considered more carefully before having put them out into the public arena as a settled conviction. I suppose all of us, like Augustine, will have our own book of retractions. But may the Lord grant us the grace that the older that we grow, we have more and more self-control over these tongues of ours and that we stop that we wait to give answers if we're not sure if we haven't carefully considered that we wait and we investigate and we go to those who may have more information for us be able to direct us in the right direction if we have heard something from someone and it involves somebody else that we don't make simply a snap judgment until we get all of the facts. Dear ones, Job's friends fell into the sin of answering a matter before they fully understood the issues involved and in so doing, they condemned the righteous Job. They accused him of suffering due to some unrepented sin in his own life. When actually Job suffered because he stood for righteousness and truth. Because God presented him as an upright man before Satan. And Satan says, he only serves you because of how you have blessed him, God. But if you take away the blessings, he'll curse you to his face. Or to your face. How often, how often do we issue an indictment and judge one another in our homes or judge a fellow Christian or someone at work before we have all the evidence that we really need. It is not that we are never to make judgments concerning others. That would be a false statement. For we are, in fact, to make certain judgments. When Jesus says, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, judge not lest ye be judged, he is not saying that there is never a time in which we should make judgment or render judgment. The context basically is that he is condemning judging others without first judging yourself by the same standard that you are using to judge others. He is saying that you're going forth when you have a beam in your own eye and you can't see clearly because of this beam to try to remove the speck particle of wood from your brother's eye. 
But he says, if you want to do it rightly, first take out the beam from your own eyes, then you'll be able to see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So there is a time to judge, but he's just saying, you're not doing it correctly, you hypocrites. He was condemning the Jewish leaders for the hypocrisy. In fact, the Lord Jesus clearly states in John 7.24 that we are to judge not according to mere appearance, but according to the truth. In John 7.24 he says, Judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. And so there is a time for us to judge, and even to judge the sins that others commit, to render and to be able to state that was sin. That is sinful behavior. Those are sinful words, whether on the part of an individual, on the part of a church, or whether on the part of a civil government. There is a time to say that is sin, based upon righteous judgment. But the Lord calls us to do unto others as we would have others do unto us. If we do not want others judging us merely according to appearances before they have all the facts, then neither should we be judging others before we have all of the facts and the information. All such rash judging of others falls under God's condemnation. The Roman governor Festus interrupted Paul in the midst of Paul's testimony to his own detriment and injury in Acts 26, verse 24. There you find the governor Festus, as Paul was speaking, says, And as he, that is Paul, thus spake for himself, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, thou art beside thyself, much learning doth make thee mad. He interrupted Paul in the middle of his testimony. <clears throat> and I would suggest to you, dear ones, that we are very often very impatient. Very impatient to hear until someone finishes their sentence or their thought. But we have to interject something. We have to add something. We have to say what we want to say before they complete what they are saying. And we shamefully reveal, dear ones, in such cases, our own selfishness, pride, and impatience when we are not willing to listen to someone finish their thought. Now, I know it is especially hard to do so and is a heated argument or discussion. It is very difficult to sit back and to allow somebody to finish what they are saying. We don't agree with what they're saying. We don't like what they're saying. And so we want to stop them or we want to say something. But even in those times, dear ones, there may be some light that is shed in what they're saying that you may not have heard clearly before. In which case, it is important. And according to this particular proverb, that we do not return words until we have fully heard out what one is saying. And we understand it. And we can even reflect back to them what they've said. So that they would say to us, yes, 
that's what I said. Yes, that's what I meant. You understand what I'm saying. Now, we may not agree with what they've said, but it's important that we try to understand what they have said. Because we cannot really disagree with what they've said until we have first understood what they have said. And I would submit to you, dear ones, when you can control by God's grace your tongue and open your ears, you'll more likely also be in control of your emotion, able to learn what is the real problem and promote reconciliation between yourself and that person. Excellent tool in marriage. That's where we begin applying all of these skills in communication. That's where love begins, is at the home. That's where communication begins, in the home. If we can't do it there, dear ones, if it doesn't work there, I dare say it won't work anywhere. And then when considering various doctrinal issues that affect our faith and practice, let us carefully hear and ask questions before spouting off like Mount Vesuvius. In Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 12 through 14, there there is a particular incident in which it is, it is reported that a particular city within Israel has gone after false gods. They've gone after other gods. They're serving uh, gods other than Jehovah. But it's only reported to be such. So, do we bring, does Israel bring their armies to bear against this city and then ask questions? No. First of all, the text says they thoroughly inquire. They do a thorough investigation. They go forth to find out what is the evidence, what is the testimony, and then they bring that to bear against the infallible standard of God's word. What does God say? should be done in this situation. What are we to believe? And how are, to, how are we to respond in that situation once we understand what they say they believe, what they are practicing? Then we are to respond. If we need to engage ourselves in further study of an issue before coming to a conclusion, how wise we show ourselves to be when we humbly say, I don't know. Someone asked us a question. I don't know the answer to that question. I'm not sure what to say about that issue, but I will look further into it and get back to you as soon as I can. I'll give it careful consideration. Again, the reason that so often we, we say something immediately to a theological question before having really thought it through is simply to save face before others. To perhaps make ourselves look smarter, more intelligent than we are. But we need carefully to investigate these matters before we just simply speak from the top of our heads. And dear ones, when we are venturing into new or uncharted theological territory, We should be ever so cautious in those situations that we not speak publicly with proud confidence lest 
we be examined and be found to be in error, according to Proverbs 18:17. The same chapter, just a few verses later, we find these words. He that is first in his own cause seemeth just, but his neighbor cometh and searcheth him. But I don't want you to go to the opposite extreme either, where we act as though we can never speak with confidence concerning anything that God says in his word. Because we must be speaking with confidence and with certainty that which God has clearly revealed in his word. For example, the truths that we find in our confession of faith are truths that we would maintain are clearly taught in the Word of God. These truths we ought to be able to speak with certainty and with confidence because, again, we believe this to be a summary of God's Word. And we can go to the Scriptures and we can find where God teaches this particular truth or these truths. The truth of God, dear ones, is not negotiable. It's not up for grabs. It is to be defended, preserved, and promoted with our very lives. So, the whole purpose of what Solomon is saying is not to make us weak and frail and afraid to speak the truth, but is to tell us, before we speak, let us know. Let us carefully consider What is the truth in that matter? And I would close, dear ones, this Lord's Day by simply noting and leaving with you that Jesus Christ declares himself to be the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the truth. He does not need to research a matter before he speaks or before he acts, for nothing is hidden from his all-piercing eye of truth and righteousness. All things are bare and naked before the Lord Jesus Christ with whom we have to do. Let us then not be so bold as to interrupt Him, the living God, when He speaks to us, as if we know more than He knows. But let us put our hands over our mouth and simply call out to God in all humility, Lord, teach me the things that I need to know. Show me thy ways. Reveal to me thy truth. Make me, O Lord, my God, a student of thy word before I become a teacher of thy word. Please stand with me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, Convict us of our sin. For, Father, we confess that we have sinned in many ways in these areas. But we are convinced, O Lord, that if we confess our sins, Thou art faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that we are not only to confess our faults one to another, but, O Father, we are supremely to confess our faults and our sins unto Thee. For all sin ultimately is against Thee against thy commandments, against thy holy laws. And so, our Father, we pray that thou would forgive us for speaking in pride and arrogance before we know a matter, for judging a situation or people before we know all the facts. 
Forgive us, O Lord, for our uh, disgraceful behavior in continuously interrupting others before we uh, allow them to say what they are uh, speaking unto us, what is upon their heart. We pray, Father, that Thou would would uh, cause us this day to to know that Thou art the truth. Thou alone does not need any further information. Thou alone art the everlasting God. But we, as human beings, even as ministers of the Church of Jesus Christ and elders of the Church of Jesus Christ, must follow these same laws, these same commandments, and example, provide an example for, before the congregation. Help us, O Lord our God, in all these things, to strive to be uh, upright, to follow thy commandments, to love thy holy law. That we may be pleasing to thee, that we may mirror forth the glory of God in our lives. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, 
they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.